Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. There was a man named Ulf, son of Bjalf, and Halbera, daughter of Ulf the Fearless. She was sister of Halbjorn, half-giant in Hrafnister, and he the father of Kettle Hjeng. Ulf was a man so tall and strong that none could match him, and in his youth he roved the seas as a freebooter. In fellowship with him was one Kari of Birdler, a man of renown for strength and daring. He was a berserker. Ulf and he had one common purse, and were the dearest friends. So begins Egil's Saga, one of the best known of all the Icelandic sagas. Set in the 9th century, but written down, as we'll discover much later, it plunges us into a world of Vikings and shipwrights, kings and poets, blood feuds and shapeshifters. Tom Holland, it sounds like a production meeting from The Rest is History. Are you a, are you a, <laughs> it does indeed. Um, um, what are you, king, poet, berserker, troll? I think, I think all of them. Oh, yeah, I think one. that's true. I, I love Egil's Saga because it features Athelstan. Yes, it does. I thought we'd yeah. get to that. Yeah. yeah. So there's so, sort of bits of history that of float that. into these things, aren't there? Um, now, you are you are doing this on location, effectively. I'm literally in Norway. Yeah, amazing. I'm literally in Norway. I'm in, I'm in the basement of a university department in Oslo. Such a glamorous um, life you lead. Yeah, it is. And I'll tell you how, how glamorous it is, is that as I'm saying this, I'm being photographed by uh, Julia, who is a photographer from... Norwegian, Norwegian Vogue? Norwegian newspaper. <laughs> yeah, Norwegian Vogue. Well, so, so um, the rest of history is absolutely massive in Norway. Um, people keep rushing up to me saying, are you the rest of history's Dominic Sandbrook? <laughs> and when they find out I'm not, huge disappointment. But Julia, do you want to just... Absolutely. I was just say hi to all the Norwegian So there you go. Wow. What, what was that? It was, it was a hello to everybody. Oh, yes. that's very nice. That's very nice. Hello, Julia. It's always good to have a guest star on the podcast, isn't it? Uh, but we have another guest star do we we do we have a real guest star so um a few years ago i went to iceland on holiday which i heartily recommend tom you must have been to iceland i have i've been on a cricket tour to iceland oh of course god almighty and um i actually wrote skaldic verse about it did you celebrating the the defeat of the of the puffin eaters i I don't think anyone wants to hear about that do they (laughs) anyway well maybe you can put that on twitter and everybody can can read about it so i went to iceland and i took a book with me called Beyond the Northlands, Viking Voyages and the Old Norse Sagas. An absolutely brilliant book, beautifully illustrated. A book about the Vikings' kind of worldview and their sense of geography and their sense of all these kind of monsters and weird lands that um, were out there. And the author of that book is Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough from Durham University. And she's with us here today. Hello, Eleanor. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, it's such a pleasure. I'm, I'm hoping that Tom's got some skaldic verse in Old Norse to, to give us. Otherwise, that's it. I'm, I'm off. It's not in Old Norse, but I <laughs> might dig it up for the second half. Oh. In, fact, in fact, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to dig it out and I'm going to quote it at the start of the second half. So that's something for Dominic to look forward to. Yeah. But no, I'm afraid it's in English. <laughs> all our listeners, all our listeners will, will. I mean, they never desert us halfway through anyway, but even if they were tempted, <laughs> they, would, they would stick around for that. They'll be so, fleeing to Iceland. <laughs> so, um, Eleanor, let's get into the subject. So, Iceland. When do human beings first arrive in Iceland and where do they come from? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's not entirely clear because although we know more about the, the Scandinavian 
and British Isles settlement, it seems possible that actually there are holy men called Papar who are part of this peregrination from possibly Ireland who are setting out across the North Sea trying to find little corners of the world, little islands where they can get a bit of peace and do some communing with God and nature. And it's possible that some of these end up in Iceland. There's um, there's, there's a man called Dickwill who's in the Frankish kingdom. Uh, What's he called? Sorry, Dickwill. Dickwill. D-I-C-U-I-L. God, if, if there's another way of pronouncing it, that's going to be really embarrassing because that's what no wonder, so No nice. wonder he fled to Iceland with a name like that. <laughs> Well, see, he didn't even flee, but he says that in around, what is it, 794, something like that. So just after Lindisfarne gets gets attacked by, by Vikings over off the Northumberland coast, he gets visited by a group of Papa, these Irishmen, who say that they went to the very far north to an island where it was so bright that even at mid summer in the middle of the night they were able to pick lice off their clothes which also says something about their their general hygiene in this period so it's possible that's iceland it's possible it's not you know they also got to shetland orkney pharaohs but then we know a little bit more about the scandinavian settlement so we have a few sources that start to be written down in iceland and in the 12th century and they describe the uh, how Iceland is settled predominantly from Norway, um, and first in about yeah eight sixty or something like that, someone gets blown off course there. They come back. Someone else then decides to do a circumnavigation of of Iceland. Someone else then stays there over winter. But we're really talking around eight seven one that sort of era that that we start to get permanent settlement there. This is what the later. Uh, Textual sources from Iceland, from medieval Iceland, tell us. But what's really wonderful is that we also have evidence from the most Icelandic of sources, which is a volcano, which erupts oh, around that time. Yeah. So, so the volcano erupts. We can date that volcano because we've got the ice cores from Greenland that also show up that same that same layer. So we know it's around 870, 871 or something. And then most of the settlement layers, the archaeological settlement, settlement layers, uh, from that first occupation period of Iceland are directly on top of that volcano. So we know it is around that time. There's a writer called Auri the Wise, and he's writing in Iceland kind of like 1122, that sort of, that sort of time. And he says there were papa there when the Icelanders first arrived, but they didn't want to stay there with a load of heathens and so they left. So who knows, it's possible that someone was there before, but that's when we're talking about the settlement of Iceland. Um, We also know that there are lots of people from the British Isles who come over, particularly the females. And that's something you can see in modern Icelanders' um, DNA, that there seems to be more Norwegian DNA in more of the male settlers or more male modern Icelanders and more DNA from the British Isles from modern Icelandic females. So, and are they being taken there as slaves? That's what I was well, going to ask. That's the, that's the general perception. And certainly we know there are a lot of slaves. And when we look at, again, later textual sources, a lot of the slaves have Irish sounding names. So yeah, there will be some of that. But we've also got to think that by that time in the British Isles and in Ireland, there are a lot of Norse settlers and so it's possible that some of these Norse settlers are um, kind of mixing culturally with people who are 
are going to sort of genetically look yeah. like they're, say, Irish or from British shells, but culturally they're going to be very much in that Norse cultural milieu. So, you know, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to tell, really, a bit of both. There was an Irish princess called Ord the Deep-Minded. Oh, you sort of, sort of. So, so yes. So, Oder or Ode, or she's also known as Unna of the Deep Mind, is one of the first settlers of Iceland, according to the sagas. And certainly, she comes from a context of the British Isles. She's not a princess herself, but there is a saga, and I know we'll come back to the sagas later, called um, Laxdala Saga, the saga of people of um, Salmon Valley, literally, where there is a female slave who is brought to Iceland and ends up having a child there who becomes a very prominent saga character, a great hero. And she seems to be completely mute. And it's only that one day um, they hear her talking in Irish, essentially, to her child. And it turns out she's not mute at all. She's just decided she doesn't want to talk. And she says, well, yes, I'm, I'm the daughter of, of one of the Irish kings. Um, but again, we're talking about a saga right. and everything yeah. gets a bit yeah. pimped yeah. up and romanticised yeah. yes. in the saga. Pimped so who knows? That's a good uh, academic expression. <laughs> so here's a, so here's a, here's, a um, here's a question for you. I mean, a question will occur to anyone who's been to Iceland. Why would you go to Iceland? I mean, it's very hard to grow anything. You know, yeah. you, you the British Isles are kind of in the way, which are famously you know, the lowlands of England, very fertile and all that. Why Iceland? Are you fleeing? Are you running away? Is that why you go? Again, depends who you ask. So, again, if we look at the later textual sources coming from Iceland, they've got a very clear origin myth. And what they say is um, the king of Norway was 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 really tyrannical, wanted to take over all our lands, and that's Harold Fairhair. And so we decided to leave. We didn't want to be under his yoke. And so we went and to he, Iceland. He, he, he's, he's kind of seen as the Norwegians as their first king. Yeah. And yeah. he's becoming king basically at the same time as the immigration is starting. Yeah, it's a little bit hazy. You know, you, yeah. you, the yeah. sources were a bit, a bit dodgy. But yeah, pretty much. But you have to think about various things there. One of which is that by the time that these, these sagas, these texts are being written down, uh, and again, I don't want to sort of talk about this too much because I'm sure we'll come back to it, but we're talking about the 13th century in Iceland is very politically volatile and there's a lot of outside interference from the Norwegian crown. Uh, so that's the perfect point where Icelanders are going to be trying to define themselves in opposition to that and say, look, we've always been independent. We've always been free. We've never been under the Norwegian yoke. In fact, we left Norway because of that. So you have to think, OK, maybe there's some truth there, but maybe there's something else going on that's more to do with the context in which those texts are being, are being transmitted and written down. You have to also think that it might be as simple as people needing more land, people needing, uh, and, and I mean, Iceland isn't isn't a terrible place to to try and grow some crops and 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 uh, you know keep 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 farms and, and all the rest of it. It is it's possible. Um, so there's, but, but, there's but, so so but presumably there there is only a finite amount of good yeah, land. Absolutely, and I guess it fills up quite quickly, does it? Exactly. And so, again, what we're told um, is that within 60 years or so, so by around 930, Iceland is pretty much settled. All the good land has been taken, um, which yeah, maybe maybe true to some extent. Again, it's a nice, neat narrative and nice, neat narrative is yeah. always problematic. Right. But, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. I mean, the problem with Iceland and yeah, Dominic, you might remember this. I don't know how far you got, but the, the interior is really not very 
yeah, habitable at all. There's nothing yeah, there, right? I mean, you no, couldn't live there. No, no, no. It's it's mountains and glaciers and and a few volcanoes knocking around, and and in the sagas, an awful lot of trolls and other um, strange creatures. So we're talking really around the ad- edge. That's where the the fertile land is, and so as you say, there's only so much of it. Um, but but that's that's where they go. That's where they end up. And is that the point at which once it's full that they move on? Because obviously uh, there's a point at which they move on, right, to Greenland and then to, well, arguably, I mean, there's a huge debate about this, North America. Yeah, yeah. so uh, land keeps on being parceled up and there's better land and there's worse land. And, and so if you're there first and you're you're powerful, you get a really good amount of land. There's there's a text called Land, well, there's various versions of a text called Landnama book, which means the book of settlement, which describes those first settlers um, and where they go and where they settle. Um, but really they're talking about the top dogs a lot of the time. And so we don't know how many other people have got small parcels of land. And it's not a case that you get there, you can't find any land. And so, well, on we go, let's try to find somewhere else. But the settlement of Iceland is part of this general movement, this kind of diasporic movement across the North Atlantic. Um, The settlement of Greenland is something that happens quite a lot later and under different circumstances. And there is again farmable land, but really by the time we get to Greenland, we're at the we're at the very edge of 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 the sort of physical environment you can you can use to have have a sustainable European style farming economy, which creates a lot of problems going forward. And it, it, is it true that the name Greenland is coined as a kind of marketing scam? To try and people to go there. Yeah, well, that's what it says in the sagas. So Greenland isn't settled by the Norse, at least, until the traditional date, date is around 985. So we're talking over 100 years since the, the start of the settlement of Iceland. And it's said to have been initially settled by this rather murderous outlaw who is outlawed from Norway for killings, goes to Iceland, is then outlawed from Iceland for killings and then goes off west and spends the three years of his outlawry going up and down the fjords of western Iceland, the coastline, trying to find somewhere to live, habitable land to, to settle and colonise. Then, we're t- and this is around 985, then we're told he goes back to Iceland, picks up his followers and his family and goes back then to settle Greenland properly. Um and it's according to the two sagas that describe that settlement of Greenland most strongly. They're called the Vinland sagas, uh, the saga of Eric the Red and the saga of the Greenlanders. It is said that Eric calls Greenland Greenland because then it would be a more favourable place to settle. <laughs> but so to be he's fair, an estate agent. He's an estate. But I mean, I, I've spent time out in Greenland doing research. And in the summer, it's, it is, well, certainly. It, so there are two settlements in Greenland that the Norse is what they call the Eastern Settlement, which is a lot bigger. These are both on the West Coast, confusingly. And then there's the Western Settlement, which is about the third of the size. It's around modern day Nuuk, which is the capital of Greenland, about 300 miles further up the coast. And certainly the bigger Eastern Settlement, which lasts a lot longer, it has its own bishopric. It's really beautiful and green and lush in the summer, um, in many ways more habitable. The, The problems partly come later, but also the, the, the winters are longer and much, much harsher. So that's really the issue with Greenland. But it's not all ice. Just a question about the, the voyages and stuff. So, I mean, I can't imagine what would possess you if you're standing on the west coast of I- Iceland to think, 
I'm going to get in a ship and just keep going and see what's, <laughs> what, what, what possesses them to think that there's even anything there. Because it's not like Columbus thinking, well, I'll get to India. You know, I know I can get there. You know, they have no sense of anything. Or do they? Or is there some vague sense? And, and do they think that there are kind of, you know, Midgard serpents and things toiling out there in the depths and well, giants roaming the seas? And it's Yeah, I, I, suspect, um, I suspect there is a sense of, yeah, here be monsters at the edge of the world. But I don't think that's the case when it comes to Greenland, because, well, for one, what you often find is the initial discovery and kind of semi-settlement of these places is accidental. People get blown, of course. They might be trying to reach a parent somewhere further up the coast of Iceland, and then they just get blown out to sea. And then they are lucky enough to be the ones that then find land. I'm sure there are plenty of others that didn't and therefore didn't discover Greenland. Um, So that's the case in Greenland. But it's also, you have to think that, you know, the, the, the Norse are a seafaring culture and they're going to be picking up on a lot of signs that we wouldn't necessarily be picking right. up on. So migratory birds, for example. So if you're seeing the birds heading out west, well, there's probably something out there. You know, you see it, it, it's not that sense of we and are at the edge of the world. And- Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's plenty going on and, and driftwood I, I, even. And, and so they settle Greenland and then... <laughs> the same thing happens that people get blown off course and they end up basically in North America. I mean, and that's definite, isn't it? Because they oh, found, yeah. um, they found the settlement and yeah. All kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, settlement is a, is a, a grand word for what, what they find. And, and this in itself is significant. So yeah. So Greenland around, say, like I said, nine, eight, five or so people start going out there. What they call Vinland, like the, like, wine or, or you know berry land that is around the year 1000 which makes it nice and easy to remember and what that seems to be is a series of expeditionary parties possibly led by well certainly according to the sagas led predominantly by eric the red's children so leif the lucky is the is the classic one that everyone knows about um and they go out there and the first place, according to the sagas that they come, you know, they call Hetluland, which seems to be sort of Baffin Island. It's very stony and rocky. That's what Hetluland means. It's like stone slab land. They then come further down the coast to a much more green and wooded um place, which they call Markland, which means forest land. And then they keep heading down. And this is according to the sagas. They, they keep heading down the coast and they then build huts and overwinter and men ships and um meet people do some 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 nascent trading it all goes a little bit wrong there's there's quite a lot of tension they go back but there's a series of these of these of these expeditions and it's really those the, the sagas those same the, the saga of the greenlanders and the saga of eric the red that describes these voyages to the edge of the north american continent and so for many, many, many years, it was suspected that they had got there, but the sagas were really the main reason for that suspicion, but there was no archaeological evidence. Then in the 60s, a husband and wife team called Helgi and Anna Ingstad actually were then directed to a place at the at the, at the, the, the tip of Newfoundland, where locals said, look, I think there might be something there. And indeed, they found remnants of not permanent sites. So there are middens, there are rubbish heaps, but they're not very full. There's no evidence of burials. We're we're looking more at something that may have lasted 
a decade or something it's used for overwintering for mending ships and then maybe as a springboard for going further south and seeing what they could find there um from that archaeological evidence <laughs> and also from the sagas it looks like the the Vinland voyages are pretty short-lived. We don't have permanent settlement. And according to the sagas, that's mostly because um, of the tensions they run into when they're dealing with the people who already live there. These are the but, Skrælings, is that uh, right? Yeah. So it's not a polite term. So so, so in the sagas, Skrælings is the term for any um, non-Norse native inhabitants that they find in Greenland. So particularly in the north of Greenland, where you've got Inuit, hunters and then over on the edge of the north american continent yeah and it's not polite it means like wretched scrawny little ones or something like that right they would wouldn't they Uh, yeah (laughs) it's like humans are humans and and finland is thought to be new england is that the it's kind of likeliest it's 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 sort of slightly up it's it's we're talking sort of tip of newfoundland heading down to the st lawrence river area um we think archaeologically we 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 think they got as far as the st lawrence river because they find a type of nuts um butternuts um in the archaeological layers up at the site that's called lance meadows at the tip of newfoundland and those really only seem to grow as as far north as it were as the st lawrence river area so but so the, it looks like they got right. that far but we don't know how much right. further they got now you've mentioned a few times the sagas and we should probably get into the sagas yes. because so much of our evidence comes from the sagas and i know we've got a break coming up but before the break what are the sagas they're uh, not contemporary are they that's the thing no that, well they're not in the form we have them written down so you should probably start with the word saga it comes so we use it yeah if you if you're stuck in a horrible traffic jam or family feud oh i've got a saga to tell you a saga in its original form comes from the old norse words aseya like to say to tell and that gives us a clue as to the oral storytelling origins of the sagas so the sagas are stories that are told in iceland and over the years, from the earliest settlement period, at least, you know, and over the years, they're transmitted, they change their shape by the mouths that tell them, you get new elements added, you get other elements taken out. Eventually, when we come to the 12th and very much 13th century, they start to be written down in Iceland. And, and those written forms of the sagas are what survive today what we have and they, they they talk about all sorts of things so the most famous ones are the sagas of iceland as you mentioned ale saga at the at the top i didn't pronounce um, it properly though oh pr- pretty close i mean honestly sh- I, I i i always worry very much about my pronunciation of everything so i think we can we can put that to bed we oh, just that, enjoy the words and that's the, good and the you can definitely come again but <laughs> 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 so ale saga is one of the sagas of iceland as ale is one of the first settlers of of iceland you 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 talked about well you you the, the the extract you had is Ulfur, who's his father. Um, he's he's meant to be a shapeshifter. Ulf literally means wolf, um, and he's one. He they, they they that's their their movement out to Iceland, and that's very typical of the sagas of Iceland, as you see their their um, their uh, what do you call it their, their their migration to Iceland, their settlement, and then it goes through stories of the settlers through the first decades or centuries. Sometimes these sagas are about individuals. You get these amazing outlaw sagas, for example, the saga of Gisli, um, the saga of Grettir, these these tragic 
disruptive, socially disruptive outlaw figures. But then you get other sagas that are about whole valleys over a hundred years or, or families spreading over several generations. But then you have other sorts of sagas as well. You have king's sagas that are about predominantly the kings of Norway, sometimes Denmark. You have chivalric sagas, which are basically the medieval Icelandic and more broadly Scandinavian equivalent of of romances, you know, so Arthurian characters, for example. You have have, um, uh, legendary sagas about about heroes of old. Um, So you have all these different stories. They're all sagas. And Eleanor also... um we have things called the prose and the poetic eddas. Yeah. So so, so, so they, they would also come under the rubric and they tell the stories of the, of the gods. So they're basically the source for, for Norse mythology as we now understand it. Is yeah. That right? Yeah. So they're not sagas, but they're very much part of that, that body of old Norse literature. Written and it's coming in, from Iceland. Very much. And written in a very similar cultural context. So um, to give you an example, most sagas are... Um, anonymous in the sense we don't we don't know who wrote them down or, or transmitted them of course there are some king sagas where we do know in all likelihood they're written by um a 13th century chieftain politician poet called Snorri Sturluson we might talk more about him later Snorri is also the person who wrote down the prose edda and the prose edda is a it's it's yeah again written in the 13th century it's a handbook for poets and Tom, this will come straight onto your favourite subject. Part of the reason that they have to be written down is because traditional Nordic poets need to know an awful lot about um, the old religion, you know, the gods, And has something intervened? Something that might, I don't know, what could that be? Could it be Christianity, Tom? I think it could. I think it could. I think this is, I think this is the perfect spot at which, which to to take a break. So what we'll do is we'll take a break. You can talk to Eleanor about Christianity in the break (laughs) while being photographed for Norwegian Vogue. And then we can come back and talk about something more interesting after the break. So after the break, I'll come back, read my Scaldic verse from our cricket tour, and then we'll talk about the Christianization of, of Iceland and the complications that this sets up for interpreting the sagas. Very good. See you in a minute. See you in a minute. The deep tracks of Iceland's blizzards, fell wielders of the bat foe and ball slayer favoured by Odin, they fought the puffin. That was a poem written in Iceland, written by me to celebrate <laughs> our two-one defeat by it's the so Icelandic moving, by it's the so Icelandic cool. cricket team about about four years ago. Um, and uh, I can see Dominic's happy face on the Zoom call at that, and he's, he's about to get even happier because uh, we're, we're with Ellen, and we're going to talk about um, the year one thousand when, by tradition. Um, the people of Iceland decide to, to become Christian. Um, and Ellen, just, uh, you know, I, I, I'm facing the scepticism of Dominic here. Please reassure me this is a significant moment. It's, it's not only significant. Dominic, I'm going to try and make it sexy and bloodthirsty, right? Okay. No, Tom never okay. does. He, Tom is ne- neither of those things. <laughs> well, let, let's, let's give well, it a Thank God for Eleanor. <laughs> so, so we've got the whole of Europe, either Christianized or Christianizing. Norway comes a little bit late to the party, um, but it has a big Christianizing king who comes to the throne in 995 AD, right? He's called Olaf Tryggvason. We need to know about him to understand. 
over the two decades leading up to around 1000 AD, we start to see some missionaries coming into Iceland. So these are generally Icelandic missionaries. They leave, they go to the continent, and then they come back trying to bring Christianity with them. This is where it gets a little, little, little bit sexy. Don't, don't hold your hopes up too much, but because these are really quite unpleasant people. We're talking Viking missionaries. These are people who go around the country trying to convert people by force, smashing up idols. Um, there is a brilliant, um, the, so one of the first missionaries gets really, really cross. He comes to Iceland with a bishop and no one wants to be Christian. And everyone starts taking the piss out of him and composing scurrilous verses, questioning the pure nature of the relationship between said missionary and said bishop. Um, I think there's a point where, what's it, what's it, you, 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 you're the mummy of all the bishop's babies. It's, it's that sort of stuff. And, and they get so, this is a really insulting thing to say if you are, um, a Viking at this time. So he then goes and kills some people and gets outlawed. And then the next one smashes up all the pagan idols and gets outlawed. And then the next one has the piss taken out of him and so kills people and gets outlawed. So so it's it's, it's not, muscular Christianity. It's <laughs> muscular it's very muscular, quite quite fragile Christianity. Yeah, they're 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 not good at having a joke at their expense. So it gets up to the year one thousand and basically the Christians in Iceland and the pagans in Iceland are all pretty pissed off at each other and they want different law courts, they want different procedures, they just they don't want anything to do with each other. Uh, meanwhile this Norwegian Christianizing king is lurking in the wings basically saying you need to start christianizing or i'm going to come and do it for you and so the icelanders are like right okay fine fine so at the big parliament it's called the all thing so everyone meets together and um one of the chieftains is tasked with deciding whether the country is going to turn christian or not and so he goes and hides under a skin in his tent for a day and a night or something like that's that's how they do it in christianity in in iceland and I think, I'm pretty sure he's pagan himself, but he decides that the most pragmatic thing is that, no, they, they do Christianize. except um, he says, well, look, the, 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 the pagans can carry on eating horse flesh. You can still sacrifice babies. You can still worship idols. Just do it privately, <laughs> you know. If we can Christianity works. Very <laughs> smart. Christianity works, right? In, I mean, in the Nordic well. world, it sort of is. It's very, very general synod. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And, and in fact, my, my favourite detail is that when they're all then told, well, you're going to have to be baptised, because it's Iceland, there's a lot of nice, cosy, um, hot springs. And so everyone at the parliament basically says, well, we're not getting baptised here because the water's cold. So we'll wait till we're on the way back. And when we get to our local hot springs, then we'll get baptised. Thank you very much. So that's the context for the official baptism of um so the official conversion of iceland um but it takes a long time and there are still plenty of people who are uh, you know believing in the old gods or believing in the old gods in particular circumstances so if you go to sea you might pray to thor if you're on land you might pray to christ it, it just depends on so, so Eleanor, when, when, when I went to Iceland, there was there were all these stories about you'd be driving along a straight road and then there'd be a bend, um, yes. and, a big, and 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 the, the the Icelanders would say, well, this is because the elves were there, uh, yeah. and therefore we, you know, we had. And I, you know, is that just a story that they tell gullible tourists, or <laughs> is there is there actually a belief still to this day that that elves and such spirits are, are manifest in the landscape? So obviously I'm not Icelandic. I can't, I can't talk for people's inner beliefs, but certainly, well, I mean, there are quite a lot of, let's tour the, the elf houses of, of Southern Reykjavik for a fair price sort of tours going yes. on. But <laughs> no, you're right that, that there, 
that yes, they they do have a sense that there are other things in the landscape that aren't aren't human, and that's okay. But just be respectful. So I, I think yeah, there are certainly people who do believe things like that still. And I, yeah, I mean you, you've you've both been to Iceland. The, the landscape itself is, yeah, it is uncanny. Yeah. A, a lot of the you know there are there are things that look like trolls just just um yeah and you you've know, got smoke coming out the ground and yeah. all that sort of stuff why wouldn't you believe in exactly. trolls and elves and dragons yeah exactly absolutely. yeah so so then going back to what we were saying before the break you know when we have these 13th century texts we have the prose edda written by snorri sturluson it's this mythological handbook to help poets because these poets are now christian the worry is that they've forgotten all the old stories that mean that they can write poetry just as beautifully as as tom did you know but because a lot of this <laughs> Thank poetry, you. that's the right thing to say <laughs> but a lot of this poetry does draw on the old myths and the god odin the one-eyed god is meant to be the god of poetry so you really need those cultural um points in order to in order to participate in this very important sort of um cultural practice the 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 other big text for the mythology is again 13th century um from a, a manuscript from about 1270 called the the codex regis the, the the king's codex um and that is the poetic edda and that's all the that's a collection it's an enormous collection of all the poems of of the gods and the heroes of old you know the sort of heroes that end up in wagner's ring cycle but also you know the the, the gods that end up in marvel films you know loki thor odin Frey, all the rest of it and so how what is the scholarly thinking on how authentic the transmission of the poetic edda is so are these unmediated by Christian influences? Can we mm. kind of say this is what you know what the Tom ancient Vikings? It's a genuine question. Or, you know, are things like Ragnarok, the end of the world, and the stories of Odin and Thor and everything, are, have they been kind of, well, slightly transmuted by Christian assumptions and influence? I mean, they, they yeah, so, so nothing is ever unmediated trust nothing basically everything's dodgy particularly when it's gone through hundreds potentially potentially hundreds of years of or I, I, when i say it's gone through hundreds of years of, of being orally transmitted that doesn't make it intrinsically unreliable not at all it's just that anything that is that old from source to text we, we can't tell exactly what's happened to it also we only have really we have a couple of poems knocking around elsewhere but but really if this manuscript hadn't survived we wouldn't have yeah, the vast vast thought. majority it, it really and then you have to think how many other things didn't survive you know we yeah. know there were shipwrecks in in the early modern period carrying potentially oh. dozens of these manuscripts who, kn- oh, who knows no. what was yeah. there that's terrible how many, but, how many marvel superheroes are we missing out exactly. on <laughs> oh, <it's> tragic. <laughs> But so, so we don't we don't really know what we don't know is the point, and we don't know how. I mean, so so some of these poems look like they could be taking the piss out of the gods. Others look like they could have much older, authentic roots. And certainly, some of the things that are described in the poems we then see in other sorts of sources. So, yeah. um, runic inscriptions, picture stones, you know, things that make us realize, okay, there are there's some truth behind these stories. We just have to piece all the little bits together and Eleanor so so I mean by the 13th century the the saga writers are devoutly Christian I mean it's not like they're kind of secretly uh, Odin worshippers or anything 
So, so what, is, what, is, what is their attitude to this body of, of mythology? It's, it's quite comfortingly nice for the most part of it. So, so if we talk, let's talk about the sagas the way, because, yeah, there are conversion narratives in a lot of the sagas. And what that means is then there are a lot of pagan characters in the sagas pre-conversion or in the process of being converted. But really the sense you get there is that these are people's ancestors. This is, this is people's cultural and, and personal heritage. So you're not going to be disrespectful of them. So there will be comments such as, you know, he, he lived in a time before the conversion or, you know, he believed in these gods or, but he acted in a way that was, you know, good and noble. It's not this sort of demonization that you get. But what about the gods themselves? What about, oh, the I mean, gods themselves. Because the yeah. gods themselves, I mean, I mean, Odin is an incredibly powerful kind of menacing hypnotic figure in yes. a lot of these yeah. So in the sagas, the gods do sometimes crop up, particularly in the more outlandish sagas. And there they often are quite unpleasant. You know, it'll be there's a, there's a ship being um, lost at sea on the way to Greenland and suddenly Thor will appear and say, I'll wreck you on these rocks if you don't believe in me. You know, so they are a little bit demonic, um, but then they don't crop up very often in the sagas. In the Eddas, in the prose Edda by Snorri and in the poetic Edda, the, all those poems. No, they're, they're, it's more like what you would see in, I don't know, Greek or Roman mm. pantheons of gods. They're, they're more than human. They're bawdy. They're badly behaved. They're dangerous. They're funny, you know, but they're not necessarily evil. The, the only sort of exception is that, of course, Snorri is writing within this Christian framework. And so it's sometimes hard to tell how many of his stories are being mediated through that lens. I mean, they, they have to be to some extent. So, for example, he calls Loki something like that, you know, the, the, the malevolent culminator of, of all the gods. He's that he's the baddie. He's the mischief maker. And there's and he calls Odin the All Father, and so it's possible he's drawing on that sort of Christian framework yeah, with which to explain yeah. the gods to a and, and, Christian audience. And the notorious issue is around Ragnarok, isn't it? Which is the end of the world, the end of the gods. Yeah, uh, Wolf, Wolf, <laughs> the Fenris, the Wolf turning up and, and devouring everything. Um, and and there is debate, isn't there, about the degree to which this might be influenced by Book of Revelation and exactly. Christian anxieties about the end of the world. Exactly. And, and what's your thought on that? Well, I think that there are an awful lot of cultural influences that are going to be just in the air, just knocking around 13th century Iceland. Um, some of these are going to be um, Christian. Some of these are going to be learned European. Some of these are going to be older sort of native tradition. There's going to be all sorts. So uh, at the end of one of the poems, yeah, it's been suggested suddenly this dragon appears in the sky, but it is sort of book of revelation, the sort of dragon rather than traditional Nordic Fafnir type dragon, possibly. On the other hand, there are other potential influences. So in the case of Ragnarok, in the poems that describe Ragnarok, it's it's really it's 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 fire and it's it's darkness covering the world and it's it's um, you know nuclear winters almost and yeah, a, it has been suggested there that what they're drawing on is is a long long lived cultural memory of really terrible events or huge volcanoes that volcanoes, have gone off in the yeah. past yeah um, maybe going back to the fifth century sixth century even that 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 sense that. The world is unstable and may end um, in ways that that we have very little control over. So who knows how much of that is also working its way into myths such as Ragnarok? 
Great. That's enough Christianity. Um, and, all right, let's, <laughs> we haven't we've talked about the sagas very broadly, but we haven't really zeroed in on any particular sagas. So give us, do you have a favourite? Do you have a couple of favourites? Oh, can... I have so many favourites. Well, I mean, I suppose it depends what direction we want to go in. Um, should, we, should we go back to Greenland? Because there's some quite, there's, there's sure. some lovely. So... Well, Eleanor, I wondered, I wondered if, because my two favourite characters are both women. Yes. And, and one of them is, is um, the evil sister of Leif Erikson. Freydis. Evil according to one saga according and to one. good according to the other. According, yes. yes, so she's a complex <laughs> figure. And then there's this, this remarkable woman, Gudrid, who yes. supposedly gives birth. So, anyway, could you just tell us about them? Because they, they're, they're both kind of wonderful figures. They, they it's really a reminder that, that, that the female figures in the sagas are kind of just as amazing as the men. I totally agree. And that's, that's sort of why I wanted to head back to, to Greenland, because exactly like you say, these two wonderful characters, there are very strong female characters um, throughout the sagas. And in fact, often you'll find that the females are more psychologically complex than the males. The males are often quite, you know, <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're Hit them. big and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do, 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 off I go. But, uh, you know, the women what, what, are... What's the, mu- what's the music they do again? Give us the music again. You did us a little tune there. I did. You always like to have a musical. What you can see was me flexing my um my my muscles. Your muscles. They are. Yeah. yeah. If I if I had an axe, I would hold that up. It was yeah, very intimidating. You, I think you've been watching too many children's cartoons. <laughs> 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 yeah, that was definitely more nog in the nog, wasn't it? It's, yeah. You know, anyway, yeah. I threw you off. Tell us about the women. <laughs> so, so for example, I, I Lackstyler saga, the saga of the the people of Summer Valley. It has this very very strong woman at the heart of it, um, Guthrun, who ends up with four husbands, another lover, um, outlives them all, not entirely coincidentally, and is is really really strong and powerful and um, quite formidable. But yes, in Vinland, in the two Vinland sagas, the saga of Eric the Red. And the saga of the Greenlanders, we have these extraordinary characters. Do we know if they're historical? They, they may well have been, maybe not in the form that we have them. Gudrid, or Gudrid, is um, she ends up on these voyages to uh, the edge of the North American continent. She, at that point, is married to a man called Karlsefni, which means sort of the stuff that men are made of. And she is a very, very important figure. Earlier in the in the sagas, she helps this... Um, the, 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 the old Norse term is vulva, um, but it's sort of like a seeress. I know, it's dominant. Yeah, again, you can't see, there was definitely a raised eyebrow going on there. It's, it's, it's the old Norse term for a, a pagan seeress. And Greenland is... is um, going through a terrible famine. And so this seeress is called upon to... Um, to perform these spells that Gudrid Guthrie helps with in order to try and um, summon good spirits in order to bring about the famine. Um, she then goes off to, to Vinland and exactly like you say, Tom, she's in the sagas said to be uh, the first I say, yeah, European sort of kind of person from over the seas to the West to give birth. Um, she gives birth to a little, a little boy called Snorri. So he's um, the first European American. That, yes, according to the sagas. Yeah. According to yeah, yeah, exactly. Um uh Freydis, who is one of the children of Oak the Reds and also takes part in according to the sagas, these um these adventures to the West is even more interesting. Part of the reason she's so interesting is because in one of the sagas she is most definitely a baddie. 
she's quite terrifying. She gets into a feud with another ship that that they've gone out with, um, which is led by two brothers. She doesn't like where this is going, and so she persuades her husband and the other um, people in her party to murder the brothers. And there are, I think, five women in the brothers' party, and so no one will murder them. And so she just says, put an axe in my hand, hand me an axe, and she finishes them off for herself. It's quite terrifying. And then it's it's said that she swears everyone to secrecy. When they get back to Greenland, things start to come out, what, what's happened, and it, it's it's meant to be a really, really dark and terrible event. And But what's interesting is in the other saga, she's nothing like that. She is... Uh, very formidable and there's a point where relations between the Norse explorers and the locals the the the, the, the tribe who live there have, have broken down and people have been killed and it's it's very unpleasant at one point all the Norse run away um but Fladis is heavily pregnant and so she can't run away and so the saga tells us that she picks up a sword from one of the the fallen people and she bears her breast and she slaps the sword against her breast and the uh, the, the, the the natives who are um and they're so terrified that they run away and so <laughs> that's how they might I, I, well this is it so so that's one of those strange things where you don't know whether that would have meant more to the the original saga audience when they were listening yeah. or later yeah. reading or that would be absolutely bizarre because when yeah, they get... this was in the summer well I mean, we, we hope so. <laughs> Yes, that's not frostbite you'd, you'd welcome, is it? <laughs> no, so but what's interesting there is that these two, the Vinland sagas, the saga of the Greenlanders and um, the, um, the saga of Eric the Red, they don't seem to have any, when I say textual connection, they don't seem to have been copied from each other. They seem to be drawing from the same pool of oral traditions that have been brought down the centuries. And so the fact that there are so many similarities between them says something about the strength of that oral tradition yeah. that is being passed down but also the fact that then you end up with a character like Freydis who is presented so differently in each yeah. one is is fascinating isn't it it's like what, what's the truth behind that is there any at all and are these stories that are being you we've, we've talked a bit about how they're told and retold and so on so are they told within family groups um, as sort of bedtime stories or as sort of a, a shared heritage or are they told publicly at, at big sort of feasts and sort of you know council meetings and stuff like that how does that work it's probably a bit of both um certainly we know that medieval icelandic society is operating on all sorts of levels on this this um oral um kind of kind of different levels of public oral tradition and then private oral tradition so we mentioned snorri um in the 13th century snorri is at one point the chief law speaker at the national parliament but these law speakers up to um the early 12th century their main duty is over the course of three years at every yearly parliament they recite a third of the laws. So then all the laws have been recited. So so we, we have oral tradition operating on that scale. And so when we're talking about the, the saga stories, the genealogies, there's no reason why that wouldn't be the case. But at the same time, we then have we have family groups. What we tend to have is is farms that don't just have one family, but they have an extended family or they have you know, pe- people working there, people staying there from other family groups, people being fostered as children there. So they're quite large. They're not nuclear families. And 
the, the, the sense seems to be that these stories, these saga stories were told in the evenings around, particularly the winter fires, but around the fires, this tradition called Kvuldvaka or evening wake, where these stories are, are told and retold. What about the, 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 the violence of them? Um, they're incredibly violent often, aren't they? And is that reflecting a genuine violence in a competition for, within these farms or for land or, or what? Yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a mixture. I mean, it's like, you know, if we, if we look at Hollywood films nowadays, I mean, please God, they're not reflecting you know, <laughs> well, normal yeah. levels of violence. If that's right? all that's left of us, if, if yeah, Die <laughs> yeah. Hard 2 is all that it's, remains exactly. of Western civilization. <laughs> exactly. So, so I suspect that, that you know, it's what makes a good story, what makes the drama, you, you're not really going to have everyone sitting around the winter fire and listening to the tale of Thorfinn who spent his day looking after a cow then went to the loo and ate a bowl of (laughs) porridge you know but on the other hand no I mean this is this is a a a violent time and there are feuds and and a lot of the saga stories are based on the 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 the, the large-scale family feuds of the past I mean Njal saga classic i mean if you want to read one saga read Njal's saga the saga of burnt Njal. the fact that he's nicknamed burnt tells you a lot about what happens i think the body count is around 100 dead by the end of the saga um so again it's, it's not necessarily going to be typical but there are feuds and there are redresses that have to be but, done eleanor also one i mean one of the things that struck me and i i wonder how it struck me correctly was that despite the violence and the, the strangeness and everything it's also very kind of domestic in many yeah. ways it's kind of it's because this is being written at the same time as as arthurian romance and dante and all that kind of stuff in in in, in continental europe but this is you know th- th- there are no aristocrats there's no kings this is about groups of, of farmers basically yes and it's, it's reflective of that in a way that i guess is kind of unique for medieval christian literature yeah, it absolutely is. And and that's part of what makes it so interesting. Part of that is the context, not only in which these stories are being created, the the, the, the material from which they're being created, as you say, these are these are families, these are these are farming groups. Um it's also reflected in the sort of people who are writing them down. So what we're seeing, oh I don't know, for example, Anglo Saxon England, you know, a few centuries earlier, most of our textual sources come from the monasteries. So it's material that's written down in the scriptoria. And so Okay, we get a few dirty poems here and there, a few riddles. But for the most part, you've got to think that the context in which these things are being written down then creates a lens through which we are viewing what existed in that society because it's it's what people choose to record. In medieval Iceland, a lot of these sagas are not only being told on the farmsteads, but written down on the farmsteads. There are some monasteries and there are scriptoria and people are writing there. But exactly as you say, it's a much less... It is still stratified, but it's a much less stratified Mm. society. And you do end up by the 13th century with power concentrated in the hands of six or, you know, six, broadly speaking, major families. And we're talking about a context of, of civil war and an awful lot of bloodshed. But the fact is that these are stories. These are sagas written down by Icelanders, often on their farms for Icelanders, and in the case of the sagas of Icelanders, literally about Icelanders. So yeah, you're, you're, it's, it's the and, domestic dramas. And you said as well that the, the, the time when these sagas are being written down is a period when Norwegian influence is growing and growing, and Iceland's independence is coming under threat. Mm-hmm. So that presumably is also part of the context for, for why they're being written and the yeah. way in the subjects that they cover. 
exactly very strongly so so yeah by the 13th century some from around 1220 to 1264 we have this period of of really really nasty civil war snorri sturluson you know author of many king sagas and author of um the prose edda is is a real mover and shaker in the civil war and it kills him because he like so many prominent icelanders that time becomes the vassal um of the norwegian king or the norwegian um, Jarls who are co-ruling with with the king at that point, but you have to think very much. It's okay. Why are these being written down? They're written down at a time when the world is changing and people yeah. need to define their identity in opposition to this new order that is gradually encroaching on what they knew. And so, yeah, by the time we get to the end of the 13th century, well, way before the time we get to the end of the 13th century, um, the the Commonwealth, the, the the independent first centuries of Icelandic settlement culture has has come to an end, and Norway is very much in control. Well, that's the perfect point on which to end because we've gone on for almost an hour, um, Eleanor. That's brilliant. But before you go, tell us two things. One, tell us the one saga that everybody listening to this should read, and secondly, tell you can do it much better than me. You can tell them about your book and your brilliant book about <laughs> the world of the uh, the world of the Vikings. So so go on, go for it. One saga that's that's genuinely difficult. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for Njal Saga. It's a it's a classic, but it's incredibly it's it's tragic. It's complicated. It's got beautiful relationships between the two central male characters. It's got a lot of very strong female characters. It's got it's got supernatural elements. It's got politics. It's it's got the conversion in the middle for Tom. You know, it's it's got everything. Um, I would say though, and this is true of most sagas, one caveat. <laughs> Sometimes it's necessary to get through the first chapters, which can be a little dense and very much full of genealogy. So don't give up. You know, it does get better. Um, if you want shorter ones, I go for the outlaw sagas, the saga of Gisli, the saga of Grettir. Um, they're more character studies of individuals and they're absolutely beautiful. Beyond the Northlands, it's, it's, the, it's the world beyond Iceland, but told through the eyes of these these, these, these um, later medieval storytelling Icelanders. So it's, it's how... These this far travelling culture. They go they go north to Arctic Arctic Scandinavia. They meet there's the people they meet there. It's the, it's the Saumi, the nomads, the the, the the trolls, the giants. Often they go east down the Russian waterways. They end up in Byzantium. They end up in, in on pilgrimage to to Rome and the Holy Land. And then yeah, from the south, it's it's heading west out to Greenland, out to North America. Um, it's so it's 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 the it's the history of the Viking world in its broad, global, interconnected sense. But it's also the stories that these people brought back, how these stories got transmitted over the centuries, how they ended up in Iceland and what humans do when they when they need to imagine the world and their place within it. And an awful lot of of dragons and trolls too. It's such it's such a great book and it's such a wonderful portrayal of I think the only ancient people to have killed people on four continents. Um, oh, what an I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm not sure I'm right. But but and and also and I would like to thank you for doing this on three hours sleep. Um, <laughs> thank you. So thank you so much. Um, thank you everyone for listening, and we will see you again very soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 
Hi, Resters History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom... How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe?